You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 10 is where we are this morning. Matthew chapter 10. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we're making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've arrived at this 10th chapter, and we have come to verse 34, and we will read to verse 39. Matthew chapter 10, reading beginning with the 34th verse. Our Lord said this, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Let's go to our God together and ask his blessing on his word. Lord, our hearts have been encouraged this morning in every means that you've ordained for the health and well-being of your people in the church. Baptism testimonies, the singing of your praises, the reading of your word, the prayers that have been offered, the fact that we're together, seeing brothers and sisters this morning and being encouraged by the faces of people whom we love and then being able to worship you together as a company of your people, all of this encourages us and we give you thanks. We need your help in this next hour, Lord. I need your help to teach. We need your help to hear it and to receive it. Your Spirit Lord, must do this work in our hearts and minds if it's to be done. So we rely upon you and we ask you. You tell us we have not because we ask not. We ask that you would powerfully work in this next hour to change our lives with your word. We do pray for those who have been mentioned already, those who don't know you. We do ask that you would save. Lord, hearing the testimonies again today reminds us that you are saving people. And we ask you to save even this day. We give you thanks for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've made our way through this section of Matthew, we have seen as our Lord gave instructions to his disciples for their first solo mission. They're going to get experience in a hands-on kind of way, and as he sends them out, he gives them instructions. Not only did he give them instructions, he also informed their expectations. He prepared them for what they were going to meet with as they were faithful to their mission. And what they were going to meet with was opposition. And he described that in a way that expanded the viewpoint beyond just this one immediate mission, but it extends on through time. It extends on to our very day. You cannot be faithful to Christ. You cannot be faithful to the gospel. You cannot be faithful to the instructions of the Word of God for ministry and mission, and not meet with opposition. 
This is a lost and dying world's response to Christ. It is opposition. And in fact, at times, the severest kind of opposition, even to take the lives of those who would serve Jesus faithfully. So Jesus gave them their instructions and He informed their expectations. You are going to meet with opposition. And then He addressed, we saw this last week, He addressed a temptation that you and I will face as we meet with that opposition. The temptation we're going to face is fear. To be afraid of men, to be afraid of our persecutors. And our Lord taught us that we must not fear men, we must fear God. We must remember the smallness of man and the infinite power of Almighty God. And so we, we place, we give our fear where it's deserved. We, deserve, we, we give our fear to the one who has the power both to cast both body and soul into hell, not to those who can only harm the body, kill the body, and afterwards can do nothing. So we saw the temptation that we're going to face and how our fear must be rightly focused. Now we come to some verses that do something very important with respect to that decision. How do we live lives rightly focused on the fear of God, not the fear of man. How do we live like that? Well, these verses give us the foundation, or you could say the fuel, for that kind of decision-making. And we can describe what Jesus gives us here really in a single word, and that word is conviction. If you ask where courage comes from in the Christian life, the answer is it comes from conviction. What, what is a conviction? Well, it's something you're convinced of. It's something that you're not searching about it anymore. You've been convinced. You have no doubts about it. Something that is non-negotiable is something you're convicted about. Something, something that you know to be true to the degree that you will suffer for it. That's a conviction. And conviction is the fruit of faith. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in your opinions. It's not faith in your instincts. It's not faith in your own logical ability to reason through a situation. You say, yes, I'll stand my ground because I trust my own mind. I trust my own intellect. No, that's not what we're talking about. No, this is courage. This is conviction found in faith in the Word of God. God has spoken. God has revealed truth. And you have had your eyes open to it so that now your life is being built on it. So it's faith. Conviction is the fruit of faith in what God has revealed. It's also the fruit of submission to what God has revealed. So I've seen it and I believe it and I give my life to this truth. I'm going to devote my existence to what I have seen in the Word of God, which is trust in God Himself and trust in Christ his Son and our Savior. This is where your courage comes from. This is how you're able to live your life in fear of God and not in fear of man. You have seen the truth, been convinced of it, you have nowhere else to go, you're building your life on it, and therefore here is where you stand. This is not a theoretical kind of knowledge. This is a life-changing kind of knowledge. We can say it this way, Christ's disciples have a pre-commitment when it comes to persecution. And we talk about what God has revealed. Well, what God has revealed firstly and chiefly 
is the identity of His own Son. It was read in the baptistry this morning how, how God has opened our eyes to the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We have been convinced that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, is the King of kings, is the Lord of lords, is the only Savior mankind has been given. And having seen who He is, we've believed in Him. And we've believed in a way that we gave our life to Him. And so we understand His value, we understand His worth, and therefore we understand the allegiance that we owe Him so that when we meet with persecution, opposition, our decision has already been made. It was made the day the Lord saved us. It was made the day that we saw who Jesus really is. We have nowhere else to go but to stand with Him. That's where our courage is found. That's what our verses this morning remind us of and teach us about. And so this morning what we're going to look at are four truths about the Messiah that explain how we embrace the Savior's sword. Four truths about Jesus, about the Messiah, that will explain how God's people embrace the sword that Jesus talks about in these verses. Jesus talks about a sword. He said He came not to bring peace, but a sword. That speaks of division. That speaks of opposition. He says He came to bring a sword, and He explains in our verses what that sword is. But what I want us to understand today is He's not telling us about this sword just that we would have information about it, but that we would embrace it. That with joy and with conviction, with courage, this day we would embrace the sword of Christ and so we'll think about that together in our verses this morning. The first thing we see, verses 34 and 35, we see a messianic expression. A messianic expression. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is He? Look at verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and on he goes. But I want you to notice three times he uses expressions that speak of his coming. You see that? Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father. This is a very unique way to Describe your presence on the earth, to describe what you're doing at the time that Jesus was teaching his men. You came. Raises some questions that, that in the case of Jesus, the answers are unique to him. No, nobody else could say what he's able to say in answer to these questions. Let me give you a few. Number one, where did you come from, Jesus? You, you say you've, you've come. Well, where did you come from? Answer, he came from heaven. What other man could ever say that? That he came from heaven. You understand your existence began when you were conceived in your mother's womb. You didn't have an existence before this life. You had a beginning. But Jesus of Nazareth, though his humanity, his human nature had a beginning in his conception, in, in his mother's womb, in Mary's womb, 
The divine nature had no beginning. In this one person you have one who is truly God and truly man. And he had no beginning in terms of his divine nature, which is why he's able to say he came. The eternal Son of God came to the earth, and he came from heaven. John 6, 38, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is absolutely unique to Jesus. Where did you come from? Came from heaven. Another question, who sent you into the world, Jesus? Who sent you into the world? Answer, the Father, His Father, His Father. John 5.36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Next verse, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. You and I now know, if we're believers, if we know Christ, we know God is our Father, but He is our Father by virtue of adoption. He is our Father by virtue of the new birth. He is the Father of the Son of God from all eternity. There's never been a time when the Father wasn't. There was never a time when the Son wasn't. So from all eternity, this, this is the eternal Son of God who came to earth. The Father sent Him. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Where did you come from, Jesus? He came from heaven. Who sent you, Jesus? The Father sent Him. Why did you come into the world, Jesus? Why did you come into the world? Answer, to seek and save the lost. We're talking now about His first coming came into the world to seek and save the lost, to, to redeem, to rescue, to deliver a people who were given to Him by His Father before He came into the world. So that He came into the world to save His sheep. He came into the world to save His people. And an amazing, an amazing reality. He came to save people who believed before He came. And He came to save people who would believe after He would come and after He would die and after He would be raised and ascended into heaven. He came to save those people. He came to save everyone who will ever be saved. This is why He came. John 12, 44, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in Me believes not in Me, but Him who sent Me. And whoever sees Me sees Him who sent Me. Look at the Son. You've seen the very same divine nature as is in the Father. There's one divine nature. To see Jesus is to see Him who sent Him. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects Me and does not receive My words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know what his commandment, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. He says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Every single believer in this room, you are so grateful that Jesus came to seek and save lost people. For we were all lost, but now we have been found. Who has been expecting you, Jesus? Has anybody been expecting you? You came from heaven, sent by the Father to save your people. Has anybody been expecting you? The answer is everyone's expecting him who, who was looking for the promised Messiah. Everyone who, who saw and heard and believed the Old Testament Scriptures would have been looking for him. John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I mean, I, I don't know that we, hearing those words this morning, really understand the astounding nature of that statement at the time it was spoken. Here is Philip saying, the one that we've read about and been expecting for all of salvation history, from the fall of man to the day in which they were living, he's here. We found him. And his name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. He's here. So who's been expecting you, Jesus? Everyone who believed Moses. Everyone who believed the law and the prophets. They've been looking for you. But here's good news. Jesus came to save people who were not looking for him. Not just those who were looking for him. Not just those who had been given the law and the prophets and had this salvation hope and expectation. Jesus came to save people who were not given these same privileges, who were living their lives without hope in the world, who had no sense of expectation regarding Messiah. He came, he came to save some of those people too. Isaiah 65 verse 1 says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. What's he saying? In Isaiah, God is saying, I will save not just Jews, I'll save Gentiles. I will not only save a people out from among a nation to which I gave these tremendous privileges, I will save men and women who were not given those privileges, who were not called by my name, who were not looking for me. Paul mentions that in Romans chapter 10, verse 19. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Israel, do you think the Messiah is just for you? Do you think a Savior is coming to the world just to save people who are Jewish? No, no, I tell you, Isaiah said it boldly, that he was coming into the world to save sinners, both Jews and Gentile. What did you come to bring Jesus as you came to save your sheep? What did you come to bring? A sword. I came to bring a sword. The promised king of Israel, the promised son of man, the promised suffering servant, the promised 
substitutionary Savior, the promised Lamb of God, the promised Redeemer of a ruined race. This is the one who has come. This is the reason for these unique expressions. I did not come. I came. I came. He has come to save His people from their sins. And He came bringing a sword. And this is the fuel for our courage when we face human opposition. We know who Jesus is. We know where He came from. We know who sent Him. We know why He came. We know what He came to bring. We are not uninformed. And so every believer in this place, you have been equipped by God to stand your ground when opposition comes. And the fuel for you fearing God and not fearing man is knowledge. It is sight. God, God opened your eyes to see the truth. And seeing the truth, you've been convinced of it. And being convinced, beginning with who Jesus is and what He came to do. Being convinced of that. You have nowhere else to turn regardless of the opposition. And so your courage is fueled by conviction. And your conviction is really about sight. A messianic expression. Second, notice a messianic expectation. A messianic expectation. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies, a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Why does our Lord have to twice state what He did not come to do? Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace. Why do, why do you have to say this to us, Jesus? Because he is having to correct some false expectations regarding the first coming of the Messiah into the world. See, what kind of Messiah are they expecting? Even those people who've been looking for him. What kind of Messiah are they expecting? What will be the result of his coming into the world? Do they, do they have that right? Their messianic expectations, are they accurate? Are they well informed? And this gets to how the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is described in the Old Testament Scriptures. You come to the New Testament, it's clear that the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ have two different purposes. His first coming is to save. That, that is not to say there is no judgment associated with the first coming of Christ, because there is. But you can describe it you know, in, in, in shorthand language, saying He came to save. Second coming of Christ, we know He comes to judge. That is not to say there will be no salvation when the second coming occurs, because there will be. But again, the shorthand way to describe it, the, the, the majority emphasis, comes the first time to save, comes the second time to judge. Both of those truths you find in the Old Testament. I mean, clearly, you, you find statements made, passages, extended passages about the first coming of the Messiah and about the second coming of the Messiah. But what those saints had a difficult time grasping 
was the valley that was going to, to exist between his first coming and his second coming. The, the valley we're living in right now, the church age. So they, they tended to read these, these two descriptions together. And in a confused way, they thought of it as one coming into the world. In fact, sometimes like in Micah chapter 5, you actually have two, these two comings described in the same context, which would make it confusing. I heard it once described this way, and I thought it was helpful. If you imagine two mountain peaks of equal height, and the perspective from which you're viewing them okay, is like this, you see those two mountain peaks, right? But you don't see the valley in between. But if you change your perspective... Now you understand, these, these are two events with something in between them. Well, well the, the saints of the Old Testament had a hard time understanding that, which is why even as Jesus, you, know, you have His disciples who recognize Him and confess Him as the Messiah. We heard Philip a moment ago. We found Him. So they recognize Him and confess Him as the Messiah. But as Jesus would talk about His dying, as He would talk about going to the cross, You've seen how many times they would push against that. They were confused by that. They didn't understand it. And so when they thought of the Messiah's coming into the world, what did they think about? They thought about the immediate beginning of a kingdom and worldwide conditions of submission to God and submission to the king and peace as a result. They expected the Messiah to bring peace. And we all know that He does bring peace. In fact, in Isaiah 9, He's referred to as the Prince of Peace. And so they were not wrong to expect that He's the, prince, the Messiah would be the Prince of Peace. They were not wrong in that. But they didn't understand the, the, the nature of that when you think about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So Christ's first coming does bring peace in the sense of now when you have faith in Jesus, there's peace with God. And when Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you can know the peace of God. And wherever you meet with people, regardless of nation, tribe, tongue, culture, doesn't matter, when you meet with people who share faith in Christ, there's a supernatural unity that exists between people. There's a kind of unity known in a marriage when Jesus is Lord that can't be known any other way. There's a kind of peace that's known between parents and their children and between siblings where Christ is loved and Christ is believed in that can't be known in any other way. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But if all you expected was that the Messiah would come into the world and there would be peace, your expectations are wrongly informed. And Jesus had to clear this up. He says, I want you to know something. I didn't come to bring, bring peace in my first coming, the kind of peace you're envisioning, the kind of peace that you imagine. But I came to bring a sword. My coming into the world will divide. It will divide people. And he wants them to understand the depth of this divide. Wherever you have one person who believes and another person who does not believe, right there is where the sword exists. Right there is the dividing point. And such is the depth of this sword that it divides to the nearest and dearest relationships of people's lives. 
It can divide a husband from a wife. It can divide a son from his father. It can divide a daughter from her mother. It can divide people in terms of you marry into a family and now there's this divide that exists between a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. It's a deep divide. It's a painful divide. And Jesus wants his disciples to expect this. Faith in him, belief in the gospel, the love of Jesus will bring conflict with it. And this is not something unexpected, nor is it without design. He says he came to bring this sword. This is predestined. This is pre-planned. This is not in any way an accident. This is by design. In fact, can I tell you something? This is a gracious sword. How can you say it's gracious? Because if Jesus doesn't divide through salvation... We all go to hell. We all perish. You see that? So the sword is a gracious sword. The fact that any of us would be saved out of a a humanity that's lost and dead in sin, that any of us would come to know who Jesus really is and love Him and trust Him and be saved by Him, that's the grace of God. How do you explain this division? You explain it by truth. One person believes the truth, the other person rejects it. As a result, one person has an appetite for the truth, the other person has no appetite for it. How you explain it is spiritual nature. Every one of us born into the world spiritually blind, dead, haters of God. Haters of God. Haters of His Son. God saved you and made you a lover of God. A lover of His Son. He made you a worshiper. By the way, I want to make something very clear. All of us who have been saved, we did choose Jesus. We did choose Jesus. God didn't believe for you. You believed. But the reason you believed is because of a supernatural work in your soul that you did not author. He granted you the new birth. He regenerated you. There was light. As a result, there was life. Faith is the product of the new birth. God grants the new birth faith is the result, then you exercise that faith that God gave you as a gift as you trusted in His Son. No one is saved apart from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you believed, but all eternity will reveal that you believed because God chose you first and loved you first and did something in your soul you could not do for yourself. That's clear. Would you say amen? So that's the grace of God. And so this this division is explained by truth, and the reason why the truth matters to one group and not to the other is because you have a new nature. God has made you a new creation. You see what you couldn't see before. You hear what you couldn't hear before. You love what you didn't love before. You are committed to what you were never committed to before. And that's the grace of God. This is a gracious sword, but it is a sword. And it does divide people. And the depth is such that it divides even into our homes. If you have some in the home who don't know Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person, that's the person as we were all born into the world, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are 
folly to him, foolishness. Listen to this. And he is not able. That's an ability word. Not only does he not believe it, he can't. Doesn't have the capacity. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There's something needed at the spiritual level that until a person has been granted the new birth, they do not have the capacity to receive spiritual things. It's not an intellectual issue. It's not that, they, that you're smarter than they are. It is something necessary in the spiritual realm that only the new birth can supply for a person. In fact, they might be able to explain the Scriptures better than you, but they don't believe them. That's what we're talking about. So, you have a messianic expression, I've come, I've come, I've come, and then a messianic expectation, what does your coming mean? It doesn't mean universal peace, not the first coming. It means a sword. You need to expect that, you need to know that. Which gets to a third thing we see in our verses, that is a messianic examination. A messianic examination. Verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Why is Jesus telling his disciples about this sword? Because every disciple has to embrace it. It's not enough to know the sword exists. You have to embrace it. You have to affirm Jesus in the face of opposition. At the very point where the sword emerges is where your faith is tested. That's why I say it's, it's a messianic examination. Do you really see Him for who He is? Do you really believe in Him? You say you see and you believe. Do you really love Him? Well, this is where it's going to be tested. When the sword emerges, will you embrace it? And what's going to be tested in you is, what is Jesus worth to you? What is He worth to you? Who is comparable to Him? Who will mean more to you than Jesus means to you? For what? For whom will you betray Jesus? For what? For whom will you walk away from Him? For what? For whom will you, will you neglect what He says? Compromise. This is going to test the genuineness of your faith. And Jesus says something here that is startling. This would shake up so many churches in our time. It would shake up so many professing Christians in our time. When he speaks these words, he who loves father or mother more than me, listen to this, is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Three times he's going to say it. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. What does that mean? It means you don't deserve him. It means you don't deserve him. Now we know, in one sense, none of us deserves him. But that's not what he's talking about in this case. It's not just, you know, undeserved grace and mercy. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, 
that if you will not love him more than anyone else, if you will not choose him at the cost of everything else, you will not be accepted by him. You will be judged unworthy to have him. See, this is why I say it would challenge churches and professing Christians because there are so many people who explain the gospel in such a way that the question being raised is, will you have Jesus? Will you have him? Will you receive him? Is he worthy to have you? When in truth, the question is, are you worthy to have him? Will he have you? Will he receive you? Will he accept you? Accept Jesus as your Savior. Will he accept you? And he is saying that a true disciple, someone who is genuinely saved, is someone who meets with that sword. Jesus or my father? Jesus or my mother? Jesus or my daughter? Jesus or my son? Jesus or my husband or my wife? Who do you choose? Who is Jesus? Who is he really? What is his worth? And if you are someone who thinks there is anybody or anything worth more than Jesus, you don't deserve him. And you won't have him. Because he won't have you. Jesus must be preeminent in every relationship you have with other people. He has to come first. See, in most cases where we're meeting with this sword, by the way, let me make something clear. The Bible does not teach, nor would I therefore say, that believers will not struggle with this, that will never feel this struggle. That, they'll never, that this won't be painful. That's why he describes it like a sword. But what it makes impossible for us, the fact that he has saved us, is a life characterized by cowardice. We are cowards sometimes. We do sometimes, we're guilty of not counting Jesus to be worth what he's worth. But we can't stay there. And at the end of the day, we choose Him. Despite our struggles, despite the times we wrestle with this, His saving work in our lives has made it impossible for us to be a Judas. In reality, most of us meet with this sword not in mom, dad, brother, sister, friend. Will you walk away from Jesus altogether for me? She's not what's going on. It is... Mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, will you turn a blind eye to what Jesus said about this for me? Will you compromise the Word of God for me? Will you change your priorities for me? And Jesus is telling us that if we really know Him and really love Him, we can't live that life. We Understand He's our Lord and He's worthy of our allegiance to the fullest. And really where the battle is, is found in the statement of verse 38. Don't divorce verse 37 from verse 38. 
If you're battling with allegiance when it comes to your family, understand where the battle really is. It's found in verse 38. He who does not take his cross, not uncommon for a criminal, you know, sentenced to execution by crucifixion, to have to carry their cross to the place of execution. Everybody understood what a cross meant. It meant death. So if you're not willing to lose your life to follow after me, you're not worthy of me. Here's what I'm saying to you. The battle, when you meet with it in relationships, is really a battle about you. Do you love you more than you love Jesus? Because what you're being threatened with is something you don't want to lose. You don't want to lose mother, father. You don't want to lose son or daughter. You don't want to lose approval. You don't want to lose acceptance. Will you love you more than you love Christ? That's where the battle is. He must be preeminent in all your relationships because he must be preeminent in your own life. Does he have first place in your own life? This is the test. This is the examination. Which gets to the fourth thing we see in our verses, and that is messianic exclusivity. The expressions, I came, I came, I came. The expectation, not to bring peace, but a sword. The examination, now will you love me more than anyone or anything? Will you embrace that sword? And the answer has to be yes, and it has to do with this fourth point, messianic exclusivity. Verse 39, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake. You want to underline those three words. Lost his life for my sake. will find it. Have you found your life in Christ? What does Jesus mean when he says, he who has found his life will lose it? What do you mean, found my life, and then, I, and then I lose it? I think this is synonymous with taking up your cross. What he's saying is, if you prefer you to him, you've lost your life. If you mean more to you than Jesus means to you, you've lost your life. And this does play out practically. If I find my life in the here and now, if I find my sense of purpose and meaning and contentment and joy in things that are temporal, which includes relationships, if this is life for me, if I could have my way and this world would never end and I would never age and I would never die, we could just keep it going like it is for forever. If you think that's life, you're someone who's going to lose your life both now and for forever because what you're giving evidence of is you've never discovered what life is. You don't have life. People who live for the world don't know the sun. They have no place in eternity, which is why their heart is not set on eternity. They find their life here, and they're going to lose it. You can't hold on to it. You can build the greatest life you want to build on this side of eternity, and you're going to lose it. You can't keep it. You can't keep anything. You can't keep your health. You can't keep your youthfulness. 
You can't keep your family relationships. You can't keep your wealth. You can't keep your reputation. You can't keep anything. You're going to lose it all. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Have you ever seen that? You see. So the one who thinks he's found his life here is going to lose it. But he who has lost his life for the sake of Jesus, notice this, will find it. When do you know what life really is? When do you know what you were made for? When do you know the joy and the contentment and the fulfillment of being reconciled to your Creator? When do you know the forgiveness of your sins? When do you know liberty? We sang about it this morning. Freedom. Freedom. When do you know true freedom? You know it when you lose your life for the sake of Christ. When you say, He is the Son of God and therefore is worthy of all my life so that whatever I would lose in this temporal realm, to know Him, to have Him, and to have Him for forever, I'll lose it if necessary. To have Him, now you know what life is. Now you know what life is. And you'll have it not just now. Here's the beauty of it. You have, you have life now. Now a marriage can be what it could never be without Jesus. Now the raising of your family is something totally different from when you were in darkness. Now friendships are different, and even your work life is different. Everything changes. All things become new. The moment you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have found life and joy of all joys. You'll never lose it, both in this time and for forever. You'll know what life is. Life indeed, life in truth. Do you know life? Do you know life? And notice that life is found in one person. If you have lost your life for my sake, Jesus says. Do you understand what an astounding statement that is for a man to say? Have you lost your life for my sake? There's only one person who can say that and it be true, and that's the Son of God. Have you lost your life for Him? Have you given your life to Him? If you have, then you know what life is is so that when you meet with that sword that our Lord tells us is going to come the decision's already been made and by the way you'll never love people better than to love Jesus more because if you love him more he will teach you how to love people he'll teach you how to love your lost family members he'll teach you how to love your lost friends He'll teach you how to love them in a way that's able even to endure their mistreatment of you and to not stop loving them. He'll teach you how to forgive them. He'll teach you how to go on serving Him by serving them. And this is what lost people often misunderstand. They think that our love for Christ has somehow shut them out when in reality our love for Christ has opened our lives to them. But you can't wait for them to understand it just have to, by the grace of God, live it out. And may He, by His grace, save them as a result. So what our Lord teaches represents the sword that every believer at some point is going to feel. Here you are, living your life, having been saved by the grace of God. Jesus is preeminent for you. And somebody else, some who may exist in your own family, 
don't understand that way of living, don't appreciate that way of living. They find themselves offended by that way of living. And what that means is you become the object of their scorn and they make demands of you. They're not going to change. They demand that you change and put them first, whether it's by compromise, whether it's in some glaring way or some subtle way. They want you to put them first. And the question is, will you love Jesus more? And if you don't love Him more, you're giving evidence you don't love Him at all. Read it with me one more time. Verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Savior and Lord and King Jesus. And you have done something in our lives from which we can never turn back. You have opened our eyes. You have granted us faith. And with that faith, there's a sense of value that has been created. And we understand the worth of Christ. And that there's no one who compares or should be put on that same plane. And so, Lord, we choose Jesus above everything and above everyone. We do that in a way, Lord, that doesn't make us proud, but it flows from being humble to the dust and recognizing that the question is not whether we will have Jesus, but whether Jesus will have us. You've opened our eyes to our sinfulness and the un indescribable grace and mercy on display in salvation. Jesus came to the world to save sinners. And with Paul, we say, among whom I'm the foremost, I'm the foremost sinner. And, and Lord, you teach us to love our lost friends and our lost loved ones in ways that we could not without your son. In losing our life, we have found it. Lord, may you encourage your people with this understanding. May you strengthen our courage with conviction. And Lord, may you save people even this day who come face to face with the fact they haven't really loved the Son of God. Lord, may they today turn to Him with a heart of love created by You, granted by You, and may they trust in Your Son for life. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.